0: You're listening to Rabbi Daniel Lapin on Demand. The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lapin on Demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Welcome everybody to the Rabbi Daniel Lapin show where I, your rabbi, reveal how the world really works. And uh, who do I specifically welcome? Well, you happy warriors. That's how I think of you. Why do I call you all happy warriors? Because I see every one of you, regardless of your age or regardless of your physical status, as either a beautiful and nubile woman or a handsome and virile man. This is because... This show focuses not only on your bodies, but also on your soul. And I suspect that almost every listener of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, every one of them has a young and vibrant soul. What is more, we're all happy warriors because to live productively, you've got to fight. You've got to fight every single day. You've got to fight against the forces of entropy, if nothing else. You fight to maintain your possessions. You fight to build and maintain your family and your business, your profession, or your career. Yeah, life is a fight, and that is a good thing. To stop fighting, to stop seeking and striving, is to die. And I call you not just warriors, but happy warriors, because to throw yourself into the fight for eight or ten hours a day, six days a week, is one thing, but to do all that with a debonair smile on your face and a jaunty pace to your stride, to do all that while generating an irrepressible surge of happiness welling up in your soul, well, that means that you are spiritually grounded in everything that is life-affirming, devoted to your faith, your families, your finances, and your friends, knowing that you can triumph over those who both intentionally as well as unknowingly promote a dark abyss of satanic secular socialism and all the many evil social pathologies that it generates. When I reveal how the world really works, it's in the hope that you will help defeat those pathetic creatures of modern secular fundamentalism, those orphans of history, who possess neither Judeo-Christian fortitude nor even pagan ferocity, which would almost be welcome, those hideous hermaphrodites and fanatical feminists running our media education and government bureaucracies, who possess neither the strength of men nor the intuitive wisdom of women, (laughs) what damage they manage to inflict. But never, hear, never fear, here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, I solemnly commit to help you transform timidity to triumph. Together we will replace diffidence with determination and displace the divided counsels of doubt with the steady eyes and firm hearts of those who, just like us, know where they are going and know just how they are going to get there. We strive for success first with our families and our faith, and then our finances and our friends, forming bonds of the like-minded, after which we will be ready to take on the formidable task of saving our frighteningly fragile civilization from those who would force us to surrender our freedoms and our souls to the whims and dictates of those who consider themselves to be our superiors, our elites, our betters, our bosses, our rulers. But before we change the world, we have to change ourselves. And what a good start we have. Each of you happy warriors, a gentle giant with a huge and humble heart, right here on the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I do my best to offer the ammunition, that will make it easier for you to succeed in all of those areas. And I said that life is a battle and a struggle, and we revel in that. We don't moan and begrudge that fact. We delight in the struggle. We seize it with a smile on our faces. But I will tell you this, that any struggle, any battle, any war is much easier to win, when you actually know what it's about, when you understand the battlefield, when you've got a good grasp on the enemy's ordnance availability. And so today I wanted to convey to you something that I think will be useful in almost every arena of the struggle. Here it is in a nutshell. The giant canyon cutting through American culture, this vast chasm separating America almost reliably into two camps, and you can, if if you're politically inclined, you can call it the two camps that voted for and against President Trump in 2016, If you are more geographically inclined, you can call it the rural versus the urban. If you are religiously inclined, you can think of it as the war between those who view Judeo-Christian values as vital for the survival of America and those who view Judeo-Christian values as nothing but primitive obstructions what they see as progress. But however you label it, you have a struggle going on. And what I wanted to postulate for you is that this is more than anything else a religious battle. Think for a moment about the way that uh, we are Uh, watching the debate being carried out on university campuses. The one corner of American culture which you would have thought was absolutely dedicated to debate, discussion, confrontation of difficult and challenging ideas, if not on the campus, where? And yet, what we find is that whenever conservatively inclined speakers show up at a university campus, they are reviled, they are vilified, they are silenced, they are yelled down, they are subjected to riotous behavior, and uh, uh, freedom of speech, forget about it. There's nothing like that. And in, in my particular case, and I've spoken about it in an earlier show uh, when I was invited to give a speech in Northern California, uh, yes, completely uh, shouted down, blocked. There was absolutely no way that a group of people – it was a small minority, by the way, of, of the people who would actually arrived to hear the talk, uh, but they managed to literally shut it down. Now, what? Uh, what sort of political debate is this, right? In a political debate, you argue uh, – you know, and if you think of liberalism in America uh, over the years, liberalism was at the forefront of abolishing censorship and freedom of speech. And so obviously something has happened here that is, is a, a very strange contradiction of everything that we considered to be liberal behavior. And it isn't political, but what is it? And it's not good enough to say what I often hear people mistakenly saying is that, you know, the side is stupid and they, they don't get it, and it's not true. I don't think any of that is true. I think they get it perfectly, and I think they're far from stupid. What is it? Well, I think the, uh, the best example is if I ask you to take your mind back in history, shall we say, to seven twenty. Islamic hordes have invaded Spain from North Africa and uh, they are on their way to conquering it. And just then, an elderly Catholic priest steps out of his church and confronts the rabid mob and approaching the group that appeared to be at the head of the mob, he says to them quite reasonably, gentlemen, why don't we go into the church? Let's sit down and have a symposium that will be of value to everybody. Let's sit down and discuss the future of religious pluralism on the Iberian Peninsula. Well, how does the Islamic mob react? Well, it's very simple. We don't have to speculate. We can just look at the historical record. They took off his head. And when they took off his head, They damaged his church and converted it into a mosque. And then they went on to the next town. My friends, when you are engaged in a religious debate, you don't ever give the microphone to the other side, never, because you're not interested in a debate. You are interested in victory. Essentially, anyone who doesn't agree with you, if the war is religious, anyone who doesn't agree with you is a heretic, and we don't give heretics the microphone. I don't know of any rabbi or pastor who would welcome an ardent and uh, flaming atheist to give a speech in his church or synagogue. I certainly wouldn't. And uh, I'm no longer the rabbi of a synagogue. But while before I retired from that, and I was the rabbi of a beautiful synagogue in Venice, California, that I was privileged to plant. Had uh, a rabid and uh, outspoken atheist approached me and said, I'd like to give a speech in your synagogue and you can debate me. We'll have a discussion about it. I wouldn't have said yes. Yes. I would have said, absolutely not, out of the question. It's not in my interest, not in the interest of my congregation. We have nothing to gain from this. Only you have something to gain, not us. I wouldn't do it. I don't give the microphone to heretics. And that's precisely how the left behaves towards any viewpoint with which it disagrees. Our website is usual, rabbidaniellappin.com, and I recommend that you head over there. Apart from seeing what's going on, we have a new feature there on our mind, which uh, we just mentioned things that are current in the news and on our mind. Uh, we also have back issues of thought tools, Susan's musings, Ask the Rabbi, uh, you can contact me or Mrs. Lappin, uh, and you can also visit the store. And if you do that, well, we're approaching the Festival of Lights. We're approaching the 25th day of the month of Kislev and the holiday of Hanukkah, and we have a beautiful audio program called Festival of Lights. And the subtitle is How to Transform a 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. Well, of course, uh, 25th of Kislev, 8 days of Hanukkah, there is something of relevance to day-to-day living to be found, and we explain this uh, in that particular audio program. So take a look at Festival of Lights on the, uh, in the store section of the website, rabbidaniellappin.com. Back with you in a moment. Welcome back. It is the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I cherish each and every listener frantically and obsessively watching the download figures, and so I'm able to enjoy the climb and growth in audience that we enjoy, which means that I have to thank all of you who are diligently and avidly uh, helping to promote the podcast by letting other people uh, know about it, people who you think are like-minded, people who would derive some benefit from it. At any rate, whatever you're doing is working. I really appreciate it, and uh, I've also received some charming emails uh, from people talking about how a friend alerted them to the existence of this podcast, and how they were skeptical. They didn't really think they were interested in anything a rabbi would have to say, but uh, they're just writing to tell me, you know, to the contrary. Anyways, okay, so uh, I was explaining uh, why it makes sense to view the political struggle in America today quite differently from what politics pre-1962 used to be and you know it's not it's not the kennedy assassination a year later or anything it's just a generalized period i take uh, as the demarcation between an america comfortable with its judeo christian heritage and an america torn in two no longer one nation under god and so uh, i propose that the Judeo-Christian tradition lies at the roots of American conservatism and that its extirpation constitutes the crisis of conservatism and of the Republican Party today. I'm going to uh, use as an analogy, if you'll allow me, um, what I call the severed flower, conservatism without God. That's that's. Uh, I'll, I often speak about this. In other words, um, the the flower uh, has been pulled off the stalk. Conservatism has been pulled off its Judeo-Christian Bible origins, and there are certain things that happen. Uh, I I do believe that uh, any political movement needs to be nourished by a religious force in order to survive in other words I think that um, belief systems are what fuel movements not facts uh, belief systems and and here of course socialism does enjoy a disturbing advantage which I'll explain um, in the, the you know the fact that it seems to speak of morality and taking care of the uh, the um, the needy and the uh, the the unprivileged and so on and so forth makes it seem a comprehensive belief system. Whereas conservatism has attempted to structure a morality-free belief system based on facts. And I've got to tell you that. Uh, Crusaders will always beat accountants. Get it? Crusaders will always defeat accountants. Uh, People who are fueled by a deep belief, wrong as it may be, but if there is a belief system, it'll beat a fact-based system when it comes to movements. So, uh, uh, as I said, I think any movement – needs the nourishment of a religious belief system behind it in order to survive and certainly to thrive. Um, The the problem is that today, in the political crisis in America, conservatism has to battle not only the natural forces of entropy, uh, meaning that um, things... Uh, conservatism is concerned with building and sustaining. Socialism, at its root, is revolutionary. And uh, anybody knows that it's much easier to break something than it is to fix something or even maintain something. And that is one of the natural, uh, inevitable problems of conservatism. Spiritual gravity goes against it. The, the spiritual gravity favors the socialism side uh, of the struggle. But it's not only that. It's also that there is a very active and, uh, and determined um, enemy. You know, from conservatism's point of view, yeah, there is an enemy. So what I want to do is take a look first at the political opposition to conservatism and to uh, to try and understand together with you here today to what extent modern American liberalism is motivated by its own religious convictions. Um, take a look, would you, right now at your left wrist. Do you have a mechanical watch? Um, so... I I don't, but I'm I'm saving up I'm saving up to buy one. Uh, I really am. I really would like to buy a a, a fine Swiss mechanical craftsman made watch that uh, that ticks when you hold it to your ear, and um, anyway, that's that's I, I would like to have that. But uh, at the moment, I have a, uh, a very lovely, <laughs> a very fascinating smartwatch, which, was, which costs an absolute fraction of what a fine mechanical watch would cost. Uh, so I'm very happy for the moment. But um, if you have a mechanical watch on your wrist, okay, that is interesting. Uh, in, in a way, there's a part of me that laments the passing of the mechanical watch, I mean, obviously, digital timepieces are uh, uh, far more uh, precise. They enhance punctuality. But from my point of view, they lack what I think of as the moral message of the mechanical clock. My dad, who was uh, my teacher and my rabbi as well as my dad, uh, used to encourage me when I was a kid to attempt to repair all the – you remember the mechanical clocks, right? Everyone used to have them. Uh, you wind them up. They had a very loud tick, tick, tick. Some of them had a had even had a, a sort of visible bell on top, and the the alarm clock, the alarm section had to be wound up separately from the timekeeping section. You, you, I'm sure you remember. You've seen them around. Anyways, um, back where I grew up, there were plenty of these around, and uh, and I, I think I think my dad also collected broken ones from other people. I don't know how he did that, but all I know is that. Uh, over the, the the course of time I suppose I was ten eleven uh, maybe twelve it was certainly before my bar mitzvah when I was thirteen um, and i used to I used to have a tool set i used to I used to like trying to fix things and he used to constantly give me these broken clocks and uh, and then I, he'd say you know just take it apart you'll see what's wrong, put it together again and I dismantled the clock and ended up with like what seemed like hundreds of little cogs and gear wheels scattered around the tabletop and while doing this I I would sort of pray to a benevolent deity to help me make the dash thing work again but as it turned out my my prayers were well basically never never answered and uh, one day fortunately I finally asked my dad you know like why do you make me do these this is totally futile And he said, well, I'm glad you finally asked that. I wanted you to notice something, and I want you to always remember this. And what's that? He said, there are many, many, many different ways to put the clock back together again, but only one way works. There are many ways to put the clock together, but only one way works. And um, that moral message of the mechanical clock has stayed with me. I've, I've spoken before on the show about a 20th century social anthropologist called uh, Joseph Daniel Unwin, U-N-W-I-N. Great, great fellow. And he, he pointed out, and you can see why he's fallen out of popularity, he pointed out how uh, the, um, uh, the, the number of cultures in the world, is about 5,000 different cultures. But how many civilizations? Well, only one. Says who? Who are you, Rabbi Lapin, to say there's only one civilization? Well, it's not just me. It's the fact that Bangladesh does not have an illegal immigration problem. Uh, Uganda does not have an illegal immigration problem. Uh, The countries that have illegal immigration problems are the countries that developed civilization. And uh, civilization is a way of organizing the lives of men and women so that they can live together happily in in fulfillment, uh, productively, uh, in a way of developing economic viability so as that it becomes easier to make a living, that we don't have to work 24-7 in order to survive like animals do. And... uh, and that uh, male-female relationships are conducted in a civilized fashion, um, and that uh, the the system developed encourages scientific and medical research. And you know, I've I've spoken in the past about uh, how amazing it is that over ninety percent of all the scientific, ninety percent, actually ninety-seven percent of all the technological. And scientific and medical advances from about the year 800 to about 1900, about 1100 years, are all found to have occurred and been developed and been discovered in Christian countries. Yeah, that's right. Uh, It's not a popular thing to say, but it's absolutely true. It's also true to say that no indigenous capital market ever grew in a non-Christian country. Yeah, we have stock exchanges now in um, Accra and in, um, in, in, in virtually every country and every major city in the world. Yeah, of course. But they were not found in Zimbabwe. You never saw any in Yemen. There were none in Morocco, right, even China. no. You found it in London and Amsterdam is where it happened. And uh, there's a reason for that, okay? I, I'm I saying that Christianity lies at the heart of a very unpopular and politically incorrect phrase today, Western civilization, which I know is, is a sort of shocking statement, but, uh, but one that I think is, is very important. And so that's what the moral message of the mechanical clock was that my father taught me. Lots of ways of organizing human society, and that, like, 5,000 different cultures. And there's tribalism, and yes, in many parts of the world it's lasted for a long time. But no tribal society has figured out how to build a bicycle factory, let alone an integrated circuit fabrication plant. So um, certain systems... One in particular encourages the development of human society and human beings. Okay, uh, quick break, and uh, I will return in just a moment. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com, okay, rabbidaniellappin.com, and uh, take a look, if you would, at a uh, beautiful one-hour resource. You can download it quickly and easily and inexpensively. Um, It's called uh, Festival of Lights, and it is um, uh, the subtitle is How to Transform a 24-7 Existence into a 25-8 Life. I think you'll enjoy it, and particularly in this time of the year where people are thinking of the lights of Hanukkah and the way the the cities around the country and the towns around the country put up extra lights to celebrate Christmas, uh, a good time to listen to festival lights of light. Okay, back with you in just a moment, your rabbi, that's me, Rabbi Daniel Lapin. Okay, back with me, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lapin, revealing how the world really works, and one of the ways it really works is that uh, we acknowledge reality. Uh, some of the realities we've looked at so far is that not every culture is a civilization, that uh, beliefs can be more important than facts, things you believe more important in shaping your life and the life of a society than things that are known. Um, so, look, I'm not claiming that a nation whose head of government is a prime minister rather than a president – uh, is worse than, you know, say, the United States. I'm not saying that. Uh, but I'm saying that certain fundamental principles of social organization are universal. Uh, also, a caveat here, let me just make sure you understand that when I state that there's only one possible set of principles for organizing a society, I'm not guaranteeing at all that the many various people who, who do believe in that set of principles – uh, will, in practice, all be able to cooperate harmoniously. Let me give you an analogy, if I may. Uh, let's find a, um, a nice urban gang, right? Should we find a street gang? Let's assume for the moment that, uh, you know, something like that can be found in your city. And we gave this gang the task of destroying um, a hotel, right? Choose a... Uh, a Sheraton or a Holiday Inn or a uh, Western in your town, and now give a a, a local street gang with, shall we say, 50 hoodlums in it, give them the job of destroying that hotel. How long do you think it would take them to reduce that building to rubble? I don't think it will take very long. Um, I think it will happen quite quickly. Uh, I think that they'll enjoy doing it. I think that uh, they'll break the glass and they'll light things on fire and they'll hammer away at stuff. I think they'll reduce the building. If that's the task, they'll reduce the building to rubble. And what's more, uh, I will tell you something else. They will all be unified in that orgy of destruction. Uh, It it, it forms a brotherhood. When you destroy things together with other people, it, it forms a connection. You know, you're all in this together. Obviously, building also Forms of connection. I'll tell you about that. But now I've got the reverse thought experiment. Now we're going to bring in a team of architects and const- uh, contractors and construction engineers, and we're going to uh, give them all the resources. We're, we're going to ask them to rebuild the building, right? I mean, all you have to think of is World Trade Center, right? 9-11, uh, 2001. Uh, it took minutes to destroy the World Trade Center. What did it take, 11 years or something or longer to, to rebuild? Uh, and again, all right, government involvement in uh, Port Authority property, obviously, but still uh, I think we all recognize that it would take our team of architects and engineers far, far longer to rebuild that hotel that was just destroyed by the street gang. Uh, it's Look, it's harder to build than it is to destroy. Unlike the complex task of construction, The single-minded pursuit of destruction produces an easy, unquestioned, inevitable unity. Our urban gang will find themselves unifying in a delirious frenzy of destruction. It will be a delightful mutual experience. But when we bring in our reconstruction team, the, the sort of majestic moment of birth gets deferred During a lengthy gestation period, they're going to debate the countless ways of constructing the building and the materials and the layouts, not to mention the regulations, all the countless possibilities. And this will happen in spite of the fact that they all agree on the fundamental principles. The building needs to be constructed. It should be attractive. The structure should be stable. The cost should be reasonable. They all agree on all that. And during the decision-making process, the team – our, you know, our engineers and contractors and architects, they'll appear to outsiders uh, to be at odds with one another, okay? Look, uh, why would this be? Why is, why is it that you'd watch the street gang seeming to work with great unity and, and, and single-mindedness, and yet if you watch the meetings held between the owners and the builders and the architects and, and all of these, they're going to be arguing backwards and forwards. Like, and you think to yourself, where's the unity here? Look, um, I've, I've given you this example before. Suppose I challenge you to a contest of strength uh, to move a 50-gallon drum filled with water a distance of 15 feet. And the only thing is I get to choose the course over which we have to move the uh, uh, 50-gallon drum filled with water. Um, I will ask you to move it from the ground from my driveway to the top to the roof of my garage, and I'll give me the job of transporting it from the roof of my garage down to the ground to the driveway. Right? We're, we're both going to move it the same 10 feet. It's surely a fair test of strength, but then you protest the terms of the engagement because I have an invisible ally. It's called gravity. That's right. Uh, gravity is a uh, is, is not being impartial. It's helping me and hindering you, in exactly the same way, my friends. A sort of spiritual gravity handicaps those who struggle for positive results and assists the destructive side. Uh, it's interesting that both the Bible and modern physics agree on this point. The Book of Genesis right at the very beginning, tells us that before God created heaven and earth, the universe was unformed and void. Some translations say chaotic, which isn't a bad translation of the Hebrew original. Uh, In other words, nothingness is the natural state of affairs. Creation requires the positive action of an intelligent being. Likewise, The second law of thermodynamics says that everything tends towards a state of disorder. It's called entropy. Um, It's why my desk uh, tends to end up at the end of the week looking messy. Uh, Why doesn't it move towards tidiness? Why does my child's room require enormous effort to keep neat and tidy? Why does my garden tend to become a, uh, a home to every kind of weed there is unless I put in a lot of work and energy. All of this is entropy. The universe is inevitably moving towards a state of disorder and only with enormous infusion of energy are we able to keep that. And so uh, darkness across the face of the deep says Genesis. That's how. It, that's the natural condition. So... Um, we, we've got to see that uh, – perhaps l- – let me put it this way. There's only one fundamental set of principles on which to base a functioning society, and the, uh, the forces which accept these principles will often be tragically divided about the methods and the priorities, etc. but the forces which reject the fundamental principles will be unified by their rejection. Um, in, in practical terms, let me put it this way – There are two types of faith, a constructive or positive faith, which accepts universal truths and permanent principles. And then there's something we might call another faith, or think of it as an anti-faith, whose defining characteristic is the rejection of those truths. The positive faith often produces conflict among its adherents, uh, people who disagree with one another for the very best of reasons, right? And I'm talking about conservatism. The anti-faith, the side tending towards socialism, seems to produce unanimity of the lowest common denominator. And it is the political left that represents this anti-faith. And the ultimate principle being rejected is nothing other than God himself. Of course, the scientific standard for the acceptance of any hypothesis is how well does it explain certain phenomena? Well, I believe that my hypothesis does this very well. And in a particularly difficult case, the congruence of opinion on the left is so remarkable, it resembles the rising of the sun. That is to say, were it not so regular and so common, it would cause us to be astonished. Think about why would it be that most people who support radical environmentalism in all its bizarre manifestations are exactly the same people who endorse the agenda of radical homosexuality. But they are. Why would the same group who enthusiastically advocates widespread abortion rights also embrace gun control? It's illogical. You know, either life is important or it isn't. But uh, you see, there is a weird predictable agreement on the left which is not nearly as predictable, not nearly as reliable as on the right. Um, why, why is it that um, uh, people who oppose the death penalty are usually the same people who are in favor of abortion? It's another example. Uh, there's no black magic here. It's just, it's just explained by my, hypo- my hypothesis. Um, put another way, there are going back to my mechanical clock, there are many, many, many ways to worship God, but only one way to reject him. I think that's, that's important. Uh, this best accounts both for the divisiveness of the conservative movement and for the congruence and apparent unity on the left. Now, some of you would readily agree with me that the left is rejectionist and destructive, but you might hesitate over my assertion that it is God that they oppose. Well, let me then further test my hypothesis in a more specific way. Let me ask how the basic doctrines of the left compare with their, if you like, biblical counterparts. See what I mean. Um, Scientifically, would you not agree with me that if this were totally random, if, there was, if I'm wrong and there is no anti-God theme to secular fundamentalism, to modern American liberalism, then we ought to find that liberals sometimes agree with biblical social policy and sometimes do not. Maybe we'd see a 50-50 distribution, don't you think? If we just took the uh, doctrinal positions of the Democratic Party and ran them by a biblical barometer – We should find that about half of them are pro-Bible, about half of them are anti-Bible, because if the Bible is really irrelevant to all of this, then it's a random distribution, and we should find about 50-50. So let's take a look at a few of them with this goal in mind. Now, the Bible's got some really interesting prohibitions, right? Um, One of them, for those of you who have have met me, uh, might notice, and that is I possess no tattoos on my body. In spite of the very artistic themes from time to time um, that have occurred to me, I mean, you know, I like some of the marine tattoos. Uh, I know it's a little Popeye-ish to put an anchor on your biceps, but uh, you know, I I, I think I think I'd probably go for it. Uh, I'm more information than you want to know (laughs) about your rabbit. I I have no aesthetic problem with with tattoos. Um, I even I, I note. You know, if if I see somebody with a terrific, elaborate, very well-done one, I usually comment. It happens to be that – I mean, I'm not driven. I don't wake up every morning bemoaning the fact that I can't get a tattoo. But um, but it's only because it's a biblical injunction that I don't have one. And it happens to be one of the biblical injunctions that I find easier to obey than many others. Like, it's right up there about, like, with not sleeping with your grandmother – not getting a tattoo is not really hard for me but it's there nonetheless the objection to tattooing is significant it ties in to a prohibition in the bible against any self-mutilation of the body what drives this prohibition well the fundamental idea here is stewardship and tenancy the bible tells me that my body doesn't belong to me i got the use of it and i therefore must look after it right A tenant in an apartment has much less freedom to paint the walls or change the plumbing than the landlord does. Uh, The Bible, therefore, restricts not just tattooing, but also practices like abortion and euthanasia. The message is consistent. Your body belongs to God. It's loaned to you. Control over your body, including issues of life and death, must be left with God one of the reasons that suicide is not acceptable. You you have no right to destroy your body. Uh, Man shouldn't interfere. That's the rule. Of course, the position of the left on all of these issues helps confirm my hypothesis. Liberalism rejects the notion that God gives life. God still sort of seems to retain some control over death. So they would seize that power and make matters of life and death into questions of human choice, medical ethics. And so we now know why it is that abortion and euthanasia have to be such major themes on the left's political landscape, of course. We also find that the exception proves the rule. The Bible gives society one measure of control over life. It authorizes capital punishment for certain crimes. Now, if human control over life and death, generically understood, were the underlying principle in the left's position on abortion and euthanasia, then wouldn't liberals fight for capital punishment as a logical extension of that principle, but instead they oppose it at every turn? The idea that vicious murderers should not walk the earth, they don't accept. Why? This moral repugnance for imposing capital punishment is best explained by my hypothesis. This is similar to the peculiar ferocity that devotees of the left reserve for the cigarette smoker in, in, in the face of their placid acceptance of um, other behaviors. There are many other behaviors, I don't have to be specific, that have serious health consequences, and um, and I'm thinking back to the, the time of the, the height of the AIDS epidemic. there was never a suggestion to curtail the behavior that spread AIDS. never. But there is tremendous obsession about curtailing the behavior that produces the uh, diseases that smoking does. Uh, they fuel a national movement to prohibit smoking in any public building, and all kind of, won well, Now, why? By the way, do you remember at the time, I don't know if you go back to the 80s, but, uh, but there were many times people tried to have AIDS tests for food preparers in restaurants, and it constantly got shot down by the left. Wouldn't you have thought that's pretty basic, people going to a restaurant? Don't you want the assurance that the person – at that point, it was still believed, and, and I, I don't know the medicine of it, but it was certainly believed that bodily fluids conveyed AIDS – And there's the urban uh, legend about waiters spitting in the food of people they don't like. Uh, Wouldn't you want to know that the food preparer and your food server do not have AIDS? weren't allowed to run that test. But cigarette smokers may not be anywhere near the kitchen. The only explanation can be that cigarette smoking is not biblically proscribed. Since homosexuality is biblically prohibited... Any sanctions applied in that direction might look suspiciously like an endorsement of God, and so they must be scrupulously rooted out. Likewise, since capital punishment is biblically mandated, the modernist has to oppose it. And the same thing I've talked before, the same thing is true with with gender. Since the Bible says very clearly at the end of chapter one, male and female, he created them, the left has to undermine that and convert gender into a spectrum. No, he didn't create us male and female. Everything that the left endorses mm-hmm. is against the Bible. Everything that the uh, the left opposes is in the Bible. It seems to be that my hypothesis is pretty proven. Uh, quick pause, our website And I know you know it already, but for the the, the newcomers that you encourage, rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com. And uh, do us both a favor, get yourself a copy of the audio program Festival of Lights, Transforming a 24-7 Existence into a 25-8 Life. And uh, that way I will be happy to have provided you a service, receiving money in exchange you will receive the benefits from that uh, information whose value far exceeds the few dollars that it costs. That's the beauty of a commercial transaction, making two strangers who don't know one another happier than they were before by a simple interaction. Okay, that's me, your rabbi. Quick pause back with you in a moment. Rabbi Daniel Appen, your rabbi, and we're back. Uh, let's continue. Let's look at one more example, shall we? Uh, the Bible gives us a limited number of commandments, and Deuteronomy specifically prohibits adding or modifying the list of, uh, um, of commandments, positive and negative. Likewise, Aristotle said that for a stable society— laws should be few in number and seldom changed. Compare that with a Niagara-like cascade of legislation that pours incessantly from an active governing bureaucracy that has become dominated by an anti-godly vision. Another example that, that illustrates the left's war on biblical themes Notice that the beginning of all beginnings, the opening chapters of Genesis, show us a hierarchical universe. God puts mineral at the bottom of the pyramid and builds on that, proceeds day by day to add vegetables. When vegetation is created, we move one level up, and we go to uh, marine animals, and from there we go to regular animals, and then we go one level above that to man, and when man has been created— We go one level above that still to the pinnacle of creation, woman, right? Because women are the source of future life. Um, This tells us that it is right for a man to dedicate himself to providing for a woman because the whole pyramid, the whole hierarchy of creation works that way. There's nothing wrong with minerals devoting themselves to sustaining plants, right? Uh, Earth sustains a tomato plant and an avocado tree. Exactly right. And vegetables devote themselves to sustaining animals. And animals devote themselves to providing for the human race. And ultimately so it is, Movie, each one serving one level up on the hierarchy of creation, Uh, For a man to see his fulfillment uh, as an escape from drudgery and selfishness and the ability um, uh, to, to start providing for a woman is only recognizing this fundamental concept of hierarchy that God imparted to the world. Well, naturally, if God said yes to hierarchy, then modern liberalism has to say no to hierarchy. And one of the very first victims of the war on hierarchy, of course, is education. Now, I mean, this is almost old news, isn't it? You're, 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 you're going to be yawning when I tell you this. But I just want you to think about how truly upside down this is, how bizarre this is. What education used to mean was that um, somebody who knew more than I do would teach me What he knew, he'd teach me how to relate to the world, he would initiate me into my culture, into my people, into civilization, what it means to be a man, what it means to be part of a family, Uh, and then he'd teach me how to communicate and how to work with numbers and how to deal with the world. He could only do this because he occupied a niche above me, right? He was my teacher, maybe a parent. What did the war on hierarchy accomplish? Well, this was, again, after 1962. Later in the 60s, for the first time in the entire American experience, students grade teachers. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? What's more, students tell teachers what to teach. How do you explain this? How do you explain that professors at universities teach what students want them to teach, and then they're graded by the students? It only makes sense in one context, the overthrowing of hierarchy. Of course, hatred of hierarchy also explains better than any other notion the unarguable enmity that the left has for the military. Because if there's one thing upon which military success rests, it is the concept of hierarchy. And just in case we didn't understand that, the book of Exodus explicitly calls God a man of war. War is admissible, the Bible tells us. There are certain things which can only be resolved by war. And when war does come... You'd better have a hierarchy in place because nothing else will work. Uh, You may remember, again, back in the uh, early days, Patricia Schroeder was a congresswoman, I think, from Colorado, and she devoted her life to getting women into the military, right? Just one more way of shattering the traditional structure of the military. You know, I think, um, well, let let me perhaps not go too much into that. Uh, Let me give you a little more evidence for the hypothesis that this debate between left and right, between conservatism and liberalism in America, is God-centric. Look, whether you regard the Bible as sort of light bedtime reading or you think of it as the word of God or, or you're sort of basically indifferent to it, nobody at all can miss the fundamental rule that every single human being has been granted the power of choice. If there's if there's any message that comes across before you even finish the book of Genesis, every single one of us has been given the ability to make his own decisions. Um, think of the first murder, right? Abel was murdered by Cain. Cain is not gently excused on account of traumatic potty training, and I'm I'm being ridiculous. But but there's n- there is no excuse provided. There's not even there's not even a divine investigation into what made him do it. It's irrelevant. As long as we know he did it, he's going to be punished. Uh, The population of Sodom is not a victim of its environment. The city is wiped out because everybody is accountable for their actions. And, um, you know, it's not a case of, of Thoughts and motivations, right? We don't get punished for thoughts by, by 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 people. We don't get punished for our motivations. Only God knows these. But for behavior, we get punished. What's the position of the left on this? Absolutely predictable. They give us an unbelievable proliferation of mental and social disorders because they want reasons other than free moral choice to account for why people behave the way they do. If God said personal accountability, the left has to say no personal accountability. Just look at the social disorder that inevitably springs from the seemingly small decision. And the the final and most significant conflict between the Bible and the left, Um, and that is how you answer the three fundamental questions of life. Where did we come from, where are we going, and what are we supposed to be doing in between? Have you noticed that any innocent little kid always asks you these questions if you have the good fortune to be seated next to a kid on a plane? Where did you come from? Where are you going? What's your name? How old are you? In other words, tell me about what you are, what you are doing, and adults say, uh, what do you do? You know, that's one of the things we ask one another. Uh, you know, what work do you do? It doesn't just mean how do you put bread on your table. The question really is trying to relate to the spiritual reality of you as to where we came from. Again, only two possibilities. Um, think of it this way. Let me sort of characterize it as you've got to decide whether we came from apes or angels. That's it. Take your choice. You want to wait for proof? I'm afraid that life calls upon you to make a commitment before the proof is in, just as it always does. We marry before we know every last knowable detail of the person we're marrying. We invest, usually without knowing every possible knowable fact about the fiscal outcome of our decision. In exactly the same way, we've got to decide where we're going. The choice is, again, only two, the godly choice and the anti-godly choice. Either there is something after death or there isn't. To clarify the practical implications of this dilemma, um, I've told you in the past a story about, uh, uh, about one of my rabbinical teachers, uh, a very senior mentor I once had. And, um, uh, and um, I've, t- I've mentioned a number of times, and I, I don't think I'm going to retell it now, but the, the, the bottom line of it is that there are real practical implications. How you raise your children, the decisions you make, how you live your life, your spirit of optimism or pessimism, many, many, many of these things flow from how you decide that basic question. In other words, if I were to say to the population of America, look, you have to make a choice. You absolutely got to make a choice on this. You can't sit on the fence. You cannot take a third. I'm, I'm forcing you to choose one of these two alternatives. You've and you, it's okay if you say, well, I'm not sure I agree with it, but I'm, I'm gonna, I am going I tend to side more with the people who are on that side. You can take a look and see which people are going to which side. One side says we are on this earth because uh, God created us in his image and put us here. All the people who prefer that view go stand on that side. doesn't mean you all agree on all the details, but you've got to choose. The alternative is by a lengthy process of uneducation aided materialistic evolution, primitive protoplasm turned into bookkeepers and ballerinas, okay? That's the – those are your two choices, a total godless materialistic view of reality or God created us and put us here. No third choices. You've got to decide which way you go. I think you would find that roughly speaking – Half of America that voted for Donald Trump in November 2016 would find themselves on the side of God created us. I'm not sure about it, but I, I definitely don't like the other side, uh, would be what a lot of people would say. And then all the folks who uh, who voted for Hillary Clinton would probably say, well, I, you know, I'm not sure I, I agree with all the details of lengthy, well, unaided material, but I certainly don't want to be with those God folks. I'll go on that side. And I I am confident that this pretty much defines left and right in America today. And so, uh, uh, you know, if you, if you if you look at where we're going, what's the future of humanity, don't be surprised that the left tells us we are hopelessly doomed, some environmental catastrophe, nuclear war, overpopulation, what have you. Uh, if you tell the left that man's God-given ingenuity creates solutions, uh, only apocalyptic measures will save us from elimination of aerosols. We've got to ban human beings from the open open parklands. We've got to save the planet, which is in imminent peril of destruction. All right, that, that's the kind of thing that, that you hear all the time. And I, I think this tends to prove my hypothesis. To summarize, it's quite clear that the power and the unity of the left – comes not from any intrinsic merit of their policy ideas or from any carefully considered public philosophy, public policy philosophies. No, that power and unity could come only from a religious faith that I call anti-godism or, more popularly, secular fundamentalism. It's a religion. And this truth brings us face to face with an even more terrifying fact, and that is that the left's goal in the culture war is not a negotiated peace, but unconditional surrender. And that's why the the Republicans constantly negotiate, constantly take steps backwards. The left constantly advances. The enemy is intent on capturing the capital city and nothing less. Um, It it follows, obviously, that for conservatives who who care about the future, uh, only a similar effort on, on their side can succeed. I don't think conservatives can fight this powerful and all-encompassing religious faith of secular fundamentalism with a few good policy ideas. An accountant will never beat a crusader. We've got to reach back, I think, to God's word, the ultimate source of our convictions, uh, certainly if if there is to be any restoration. Um, That that is how it seems to to me for, for it to work. Uh, I I think it's fair to say that it is secular fundamentalism. It's the political left that has basically chosen chosen the Bible as the battlefield. Uh, They've made the abolition of transcendent value the centerpiece of the struggle. Now, they don't state it that way, obviously, but you only got to take a look at it. And and, and that's what I've been trying to do in this show. Uh, For the conservative side to ignore Judeo-Christian Bible-based thought – is essentially to abandon the entire battleground to the political enemy. Uh, As rejection of the Judeo-Christian value system fuels and and unifies liberalism, um, it would seem that the embrace of that same system would do the same for conservatives. Just think about this. Let's say you're not sure about your position on private property. Just take a look at the Bible. You'll see each man sitting under his fig tree, under. Outside his house. You'll see three times the number of laws guiding the private ownership and transfer of private owned property than govern ritual issues. You'll see every individual giving charity of his own money and possessions rather than a centralized redistribution machine masquerading as compassion. Not sure where you stand on education? No problem. Your psychic data link to Scripture reminds you that the commandment to educate rests upon. Parents, It is their obligation and their privilege. And when they employ teachers, those teachers must teach the values of their employers, not anti-values beamed at them from the beltway. How do you feel about abortion, public endorsement of homosexuality, the military, the criminal justice system? All of these and others are illuminated with laser-like clarity when seen through the lens of the Bible. Well, that's probably about as far as we can go. Uh, this, this, is, this is a big topic, but I'll, I'll just wrap up with uh, a reminder of what I was talking about at the beginning. I said I would tell you at the end, uh, the severed flower. You know, I've got this beautiful rose flower on a bush at the back of my garden. People come and see it and smell it, and they bend down and look at it. Uh, It's it's gorgeous. I think to myself, you know what? Why make people drag all the way through the garden? I clip it off the bush, put it in a vase of water, and put it on my dining room table. And, oh, do I think I'm smart. Uh, Now people can come into my house. They can smell the rose. They don't have to walk all the way through the garden. It's fantastic. Really, everything is terrific. I'm so impressed with me. And um, day two comes, and I'm still impressed with me, day three comes, and it's starting, the, the petals are drooping, and day four, it's dying, day five, it's, it's, it's shriveled and brown, it's all gone. The severed flower doesn't really work. My friends, um, in, uh, in the garden, the garden needs to graft the flower back onto its plant, and it'll bloom again once it's connected to its roots. It'll flourish and attract visitors again but conservatism i believe has been detached from its bible-based judeo-christian origins and there's been an attempt to turn it into a wonkish system of policies that makes sense but remember accountants never beat crusaders and the only way i see to restore conservatism is to regraft it back on to its original biblical values. I realize that that's going to upset uh, a whole lot of secular conservatives, and there's much more to discuss on this. Perhaps I'll do it on another show. Uh, there's issues of uh, social and economic conservatism. Can those things really be separated? I'll explain why not. But, um, but right now, I do believe this provides us with a, a – ro- I hope it uh, provides us with a helpful lens through which to understand a little bit of what's really going on in the culture today. Thank you very much indeed for being part of the show. The website is rabbidanielapin.com. The product is um, Festival of Lights. You know what to do, rabbi Daniel And I wish you a very fulfilling week of good times with your friends, with your families. Yes, it is actually just before Thanksgiving that I am uh, recording this show. Uh, So good times with family and with friends, and yes, good times with God and with your finances. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin, On Demand, on the Blaze Radio Network.